Welcome to Feminist Buzzkills, the show that hasn't been indicted this week. Yet. It is Friday at Sex Moji. <laughs> I feel like we're in the clear. <laughs> I'm Liz Winstead, and I'm joined by my co-host, the chimey Inny Moji Halamote. <laughs> Hello. On today's show, it's Lawsuit Palooza. We talked to Robin Marty of the West Alabama Women's Center about the lawsuit that clinic and other abortion providers have filed against the state's AG. So regarding his comments about punishing those who help Alabamans access abortion care elsewhere. Jesus, they're so awful. And we're also breaking down a few of the lawsuits anti-abortion Karen's got cooking because there have been laws and regulations implemented that prevent them from being the shittiest. In one, a nurse was big mad that military personnel will be providing abortion care, even though she will never have to. And in another, fake clinics are furious that the state of Illinois has decided they can't play doctor and straight up lie to folks about abortion. Plus, author of the Propagandist Playbook, sociologist Francesca Tripodi is here to walk us through the anatomy of a conspiracy theory. And rounding us out is comedian and actor Liz Glazer to tell us how she's used humor to cope with some of life's most heartbreaking challenges. It's a lot. But before we dive in, I want to do a birthday shout out to my co-host. Happy birthday, Liz! Thank you. My birthday's tomorrow. So excited about your birthday being tomorrow. Are you though? It is. It's an official holiday here at AM. Yeah, we're we've taken Saturdays off. We're taking Saturday off. <laughs> so we'll, take, we'll take the whole day off. We'll take all of Saturday <laughs> off. We're giving it to people as a paid <laughs> holiday because that's how we, in fact, I'm going to say also take Sunday. The generosity abounds, Liz. I just give and give and give on my it's birthday. So nice. it's I so know nice. I'm excited. I'm going to, I don't know what I'm doing. My sister called me and said, um, I'm planning something for your birthday and I'm picking you up at 5.30. And Ooh. I said, can I bring the dog? And she said, yes. And I said, what do I have to wear? And she says nothing. So I almost want to walk out naked just to freak her out. <laughs> So it's a birthday in your birthday suit with your family and your dog. You're going to be naked with your dog. It also sounds slightly (laughs) sketch. So I'll keep you all posted because I know everyone's very excited. Mm -hmm. You're going to drop pics. (laughs) I'm going to drop pics. I'm also going to just beg for money from you right now since it is my birthday. You could drop a little Patreon love to celebrate my birthday or just make a straight up donation at aafront.org slash donate um, and say, this is for Liz's birthday because we heard her talking about it on the podcast and she's going to do something naked with her dog and we support that (laughs) or we're generally freaked out by it, but we want to give money anyway. I feel like whichever inspires you people, donate, give, celebrate with us. Celebrate and do it. All right, blah, 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 birthday. Moji, thanks for the love. And and I hope my staff enjoys their weekend off in honor of my birthday. But let's kick this bitch off and toss it over to Alyssa to drop a big steaming pile of news on us this week. Alyssa, what you got? Hey, friends. Happy birthday, Liz. And welcome back to another steaming news dump because you know what it is. It's yet another week of reproductive whack-a-mole as shitty abortion bans get their asses handed to them. That sounds like good news. It sounds so good. It does. It is. It is good news. Can you believe it? Can you believe it? I've got a couple. Um, it's just for you. First up, Indiana was set to institute one of the strictest abortion bans in the country this week, but it was immediately smacked down by a lawsuit. Do you hear that sound? That's the sound of Hoosier cooters everywhere releasing a sigh of requeef. <laughs> More good news for states that begin with I. Idaho's bullshit abortion trafficking law also got got this week. The law attempted to punish abortion seekers and anyone helping someone access care in another state. 
The law attempted to punish abortion seekers and anyone helping someone access care in another state the same way it would punish a featured guest on Dateline Predator. <laughs> but a federal judge was like, I'm Chris Hansen, and this is unconstitutional for now. We'll keep you posted on this story because <laughs> who knows how it's going to end. <laughs> but speaking of bad intel, you know that medication abortion case we're all waiting on? Well, we learned this week that the Texas judge who initially ruled that they should just stop making the sin pill was relying on a research study that was so full of bullshit that it's under investigation because the authors misrepresented their finding that medication abortion leads to massive complications and the whole thing was grossly misleading. Basically, it's a super fun site of information. And if you're wondering if this is good news, <laughs> we'll keep you updated. <sighs> and finally, you remember Trisha Cotham, the North Carolina turncoat who switched parties just so she could sign a 12-week abortion ban? Well, the New York Times is now reporting that she was likely a GOP plant all along and that Cotham has been planning this Judas Anakin Skywalker thruple for months. Uh, she was the one who said that she had a physician-assisted miscarriage, right? That's how she talked about her abortion, if I remember. Yeah, that's how she talked about her abortion, because she wouldn't say abortion, because her abortion was special. It was a physician-assisted miscarriage. Mm, you can only get those in France. <laughs> uh, don't forget, it's only sparkling abortion over here. Well, maybe we should call her party change a villain-assisted miscarriage of justice. Good one. I like it. Or we can just call her a bitch. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just, I'm opting in for that. Accurate. Oh, look at you getting straight to the point for your birthday. You know what? Who's got time to suffer fools and waste oxygen on Trisha Cotham? She is a national turncoat on my birthday. Mm -hmm. This bitch. We find that out. Yeah, bye. Uh, Alyssa, thanks for the news. It was highly terrifying, but also good. So thanks for bringing some good on my birthday. Thanks, Alyssa. Thanks, loves. Thanks, Alyssa. Okay, now let's get to the stories. Moji and I wanted to dig a bit deeper on. We have been continually following on this pod this current trend of states with total or near total abortion bans proposing or passing laws that give them the right to punish residents who help folks travel out of state to get an abortion. Legalized trolling is as creepy as it sounds, but the good news is advocates and medical professionals have had enough and have started to fight back with lawsuits challenging these threats and these laws. So joining us now is one such provider who has teamed up with other reproductive health care practitioners in Alabama to sue the AG over his threat of prosecution for helping folks get out-of-state care. So please welcome Back to the podcast, our dear friend, Operations Director from the West Alabama Women's Center, Robin Marty. Hi, Robin. Hi, Robin. Hi. Hello. Oh, my <laughs> gosh. Um, I love it. You're so enthusiastic. You're very well lit. I am mm -hmm. excited. <laughs> That's the most important part. Yes. Oh, my God. Having you here, it's so great. So we've just been really obsessed with this trend, and we want to get to it in a second, but before we talk to the the whys of the lawsuit i think folks would love to hear about what your pivot has been in alabama from abortion provider to healthcare provider since dobbs created this total ban in alabama so i'm actually really excited that you asked about that because we could not be more proud of what we have done it has now been 1 year since dobbs was decided and 1 year since we shut down and then reopened as a nonprofit sliding scale health clinic. And in that year, we have seen almost 700 patients. 
Um, we just had our first patient give birth yesterday. So we're very excited about that. At this point, we have, I believe, 20 active prenatal care clients. Um, we see people who are doing prep. We see people who are obtaining medications for transitioning. We have an active roster of, I believe, 60 patients through the Knights and Orchid Society, which is a Black trans-led group out in Selma, Alabama. So we've been doing it and we are making sure that every Everybody in Tuscaloosa can get care whether they can afford it or not, whether they have insurance or not. Um, and most importantly, we're making sure that the care that they get is accurate, is non-stigmatizing, and is in their best health interest and not what the state believes is their best health interest. That's incredible. It is incredible. And part of what you've been doing thus far also is helping refer folks to get abortion care where they can safely get abortion care, correct? Oh, that's a big old no. That is one thing that we have not been allowed to do for the last year. Talk about that. I would love to talk about that. So one of the things that we are all aware of as reproductive rights um, and reproductive health advocates is the fact that this is a massively changing landscape, especially in the South. We know that the clinics that are open are overwhelmed, that many states are having their gestational limits changed every time the legislature meets. We are currently waiting to see what is going to happen in Florida, which has a 15-week ban, but any day now could be dropped to a so-called heartbeat ban and six weeks. Um, and we know that this is something that is impossible for many people to navigate, much less somebody who doesn't follow this all the time. And when a person is pregnant and does not want to be pregnant and wants to access their legal right to not be pregnant, they have to slog through so much information in order to try to figure out where can they go and how can they get help. And that's not something that we are allowed to share at all. Um, we've spent the last year not sharing any information. And to be completely honest, it has been killing my staff. This is staff that has been here in a lot of cases far longer than me. They've been there since we were doing abortions. They were there through numerous clinic closures. Every time the state did something to shut it down, they would go away and they would come right back as soon as it was open again. And these are people who still stayed to do whatever it is that they can possibly do in order to make sure that pregnant people are still being taken care of. And here they're being told that they are not allowed to provide all of the medically accurate, all of the publicly available information that they should be able to give to people in order to help them make the best healthcare decisions for them. And so it's breaking them. And that's why we have decided that it's time to make sure that we can try to get back that right, because this is a free speech issue. And this is something that we all should be able to give out. So Robin, just so I'm clear, before we ask more information about the law, say, there is a law saying you cannot talk about how to access abortion outside of state. So that's the part that is really complicated. There isn't a, such a law that says you cannot access abortion out of the state. What there is, is an attorney general who shortly after the Dobbs decision said that there is a criminal conspiracy law that exists and that he believes that a criminal conspiracy would apply to somebody who was trying to help someone do something outside of Alabama that was illegal in the state of Alabama. 
And so that is what has kept us quiet for so long, because we have been worried about that Criminal Conspiracy Act being used against us. This is especially important in our staff because we are a small staff. There are six of us. There are half Black women. They are all single mothers or grandmothers. Everybody except for me is the sole bread earner in their family. And An arrest in any way, shape, or form is something that would be devastating to their families. So, of course, it was something that we paid very close attention to. Nobody can go to jail from my clinic. I will not let that happen. And in the state of Alabama, um, jails are real bad, so much worse than in many other states. So this is a life-saving thing for them as well. We have been following this suggestion, as the AG seems to have put it, because this is not something that a person wants to test and find out, okay, you were wrong, you're going to be prosecuted because that's something that doesn't go away. That's something that can harm everybody financially, even if it does end up getting dropped down the road. Oh my goodness. I don't think I fully understood that there was a something that could be enforced, even though it wasn't abortion related. So you filed a lawsuit to change this, or at least to get some clarity. A, what is your lawsuit about? And then who are you partnering with and what are you demanding? So like I said, our lawsuit is primarily about making sure that there is no ability for the attorney general or the district attorneys in the state to come and prosecute us over this idea of it being a criminal conspiracy to provide someone with information, with places where they can obtain support in order to leave the state or to do anything like that that would possibly be seen as a conspiracy when they're actually accepting legal care. We are partnering with Yashika Robinson, fabulous OBGYN out of Cutsville, who is doing this both on behalf of her patients in their clinic, but also on behalf of the patients as an OBGYN who is doing a lot of delivery and ends up seeing a lot of patients who do have complicated pregnancies. And so they might need to leave the state. We have all been silenced. And so her clinic, she herself and our clinic have joined together in order to make this suit happen. With the help of the ACLU, I would be remiss if I did not say that the ACLU is, I am not a lawyer. I'm not a doctor. I just talk a lot and that's my job. Well, I'm really excited you're doing this because I feel like in so many of these cases, you know, I, the thing that I always go back to is whether it's a medical procedure, whether it's seeking a sex worker, whether it's gambling, whether it's pot, you know, if things are legal in other states and somebody from a state where it's not legal goes to enjoy that or, or partake in that, in that state, it should be fine. Like there's no federal law against abortion, right? Yes. And so it, I'm guessing that's part of your case. Yeah, <laughs> I know, right? Had to. Yeah. No, no, no. We're realists here. No, we're realists here. <laughs> but, you know, so I'm really glad you're doing this. And is your goal to have this be a model to set a standard to take it as far as it needs to go so that you have a higher court, possibly the Supreme Court saying, can they do this or not? No, honestly, my goal is for the attorney general to say, oh, I guess I was wrong. Based on the complaint, I fully believe in everything that's in there, that this is a free speech issue and that is not something that is deniable. So my goal is the hope that this would be resolved quickly because the more quickly that it can be resolved, the more quickly we can give full spectrum care, the more quickly that we can make sure that people who do want to leave the state can do that in a timely manner, can do it before they get pushed into this third trimester or second trimester. This is going to be so necessary for so many people down here 
here just because of the fact that we're already hearing that clinics are, of course, obviously full in Georgia because there's only the six weeks. But we know North Carolina now that it has limited their access to abortion. That's becoming full. When we are going to hit a point very soon where Illinois is going to be the closest place where people from the South can access legal abortion care. This is something that is going to require so much work um, and also will need to be able to help people when they come back home. So we just want to make sure that people can still access something that is legally their right and legally available to them. And that should be something that we should be able to do. We just want to provide all of the options and all of the care. And so I just want to ask, where are you at in the process? What are the next steps? And then how can our listeners help you in this fight? So in the process, I believe that obviously the lawsuit has been filed. um, And I believe that everybody has been served. And that is as far as I know at this point. Um, We did just file this on Monday, even though this feels like the longest week I have ever sat through. But so the next thing is, We will get a response from the attorney general as to what he feels is is the way to respond to this suit. And I'm as anxious to hear about that as everybody else is. If you want to help support us, we are alreprohealth.com. And you can get onto our site. And first of all, you can see all of the amazing different types of services that we do provide to people. And I highly recommend clicking on the Are You Pregnant website button because that is literally the only thing that we are allowed to tell people when they do say that they are interested in abortion. We can say, go to our website. There is a button you can click, but there is also a donate button. So if people want to donate to help us out, we can tell you that over the last one year that we've been operating, we have had about $28,000 worth of patient income in a year. Almost everything. Yeah. 600 patients, 1,700 appointments, $28,000. Our average patient income is about $20 per patient or per appointment. Almost everything that has kept us going for the last year has been grants and donations. And we literally cannot do this without your support. Well, Robin, it has been so great to talk to you. A, on top of just trying to keep your clinic open, taking on this lawsuit in partnership with with Dr. Robinson is so incredible. And we will put all those links in the show notes. But I just want to say to our listeners, understand a clinic that decides to stay in Alabama to provide services and information that they can provide is a clinic that is helping not only folks who need it profoundly, they have a supportive, safe place to land. They have an educated staff who is going to be giving them comprehensive and compassionate care. And in some perfect world, abortion access, we get it again. They are in in a place to reset up and do that work. And so I just want to thank you for staying there for the people of Alabama to provide reproductive care because so many people wouldn't, they would just leave. So the fact Mm -hmm. that you stayed, they deserve your dollars. So make it rain (laughs) on the West Alabama (laughs) Women's Center. Everybody we will put the links in the show notes. Thank you, Robin. Thank you, Robin. Anytime. Always happy to get to chat with you. Love you. I love you too. Continuing lawsuit Palooza. Moji's going to take us over to Illinois. Oh, yeah. The fight against fake clinics is heating up. Last week, the governor of Illinois signed the Deceptive Practices of Limited Services Pregnancy Center Act 
into law. This bill allows the Attorney General of Illinois to investigate and prosecute fake clinics for fraud, but only following a complaint from someone who's visited one. A fake clinic could be fined up to $50,000 if it's found to engage in misinformation like lying about an ultrasound or lying about the gestational age of a pregnancy or lying about the side effects of abortion. This is pretty exciting. Um, this is really, really helpful. And yeah, the people who have been harmed can essentially follow an online link, the attorney general's online link and say, hey, this happened to me. Go check it out. It's great. You know, one thing I was wondering is the part where, you know, the person has to report them. Mm -hmm. How do they know if they're a fake clinic or not? You know, like that's the part that I was kind of confused about. Well, this is one of the problems with fake clinics. I feel like a lot of people don't know about fake clinics. I think the way that really empowers and gives this law some teeth is reminding people what they are, where they are, and some of the warning signs. But there is kind of no way to know unless you've suffered harm like your fallopian tube ruptures because they didn't tell you were having an ectopic pregnancy, right? You need to have those obvious harms to know. I mean, even when I think of my personal experience having visiting a fake clinic, I don't know if that's what I would have said I'd done until I knew what they were. You know, it's true. And also I was thinking too, like, would you want to report going to a fake clinic if you were seeking abortion care or seeking something to a government agency? Because I think so often part of like, I'm excited about this law, but I also think about what I would feel like if I was seeking abortion care, maybe I didn't want anyone to know I was pregnant or I wanted to keep things private. Like, would I feel okay about reporting them for being garbage all the time, right? So that's like a tricky part of all this is always the reporting aspect, but it says you can't engage in deception, fraud, false pretense, false promises, or misrepresentation, concealment, suppression, or omission of any material fact when it talks about pregnancy-related services. So I technically could include people who provide all kinds of care that relate to reproduction, right? So I guess if you just go to a clinic and someone's bullshitting with you and giving you garbage, go ahead and report them. I mean, you know, I'm jumping ahead here, but one of the problems is that the Supreme Court has already said medical cosplay is constitutionally protected speech. And that really keeps legislatures from being proactive and going after these clinics. They have to be reactive. They have to say, oh no, someone suffered harm and we have to do something about it, right? This is unfortunately the way that the Supreme Court has tied the hands of states that realize that these are dangerous places, but they are working in a really gray, unlicensed, unregulated area. It's true. And, you know, we've talked about it a lot, but that Supreme Court case basically said, if you're not providing medical care, you can do, as Moji said, put on a lab coat, give somebody an ultrasound, give them a pregnancy test, lie to them about what's happening because you're not providing actual care. So Moji, how does this law differ from the law that the Supreme Court said you're allowed to dress up like a doctor and lie to people? Again, so the law that it, they had in California basically were asking clinics to post signs saying there are real places you can go to to get real health care. And so this, rather than asking the clinic to do anything to let people know, we may not be giving you what you're looking for. This is just an opportunity for people who've gone to these places and feel like they've suffered some harm to say, wait, I suffered some harm or I went to this place thinking I was going to get ideas, you know, a, a sense of what abortion care could be or should be. And instead they made me watch the stupid shit and, and took up two hours of my time and maybe like kidnap my clothes for an hour. This is, again, it's, it has a reactive nature to it and it doesn't ask the clinic to do anything, but besides stay their trash ass self. And then people can just react to that and respond to that. 
Well, I guess that's like one way of doing it. It just feels to me like, you know, it's sort of like when they said to polluters, you know, you'll just pay a carbon tax. And so they just paid the carbon tax and continue to pollute. Um, it's a good first step, but I just really would love to be able to see a way that we could hold them more accountable and also having a strikes policy. Mm-hmm. If people are going in and getting this and having this harm happen to them, and it's just happening over and over again, at what point do they get shut down? Well, so the fee for this, the fee is up to $50,000. So one could argue or one could hope that if the same clinics keep getting struck with this fee, perhaps they will go out of business, which is again, these places have really deep pockets. Yep. They have yeah. really deep pockets. So that is a bit of a wish and a prayer. Uh, it'll maybe put some of the smaller players out of business. But of course, this law went into effect and immediately the National Institute of Family and Life Advocates, the same group that took the case of the Supreme Court that said they were allowed to do medical cosplay, jumped in and started a lawsuit against this. So, you know, they have money. We will see. It's not the same case. Um, it's not the same grounds, but they are putting up their same fight. You know, just fighting and fighting and fighting for the right to lie to people and manipulate them when they are at their most vulnerable is just certainly the America that we all were dreaming to have. Listen, <laughs> so, it is. Well, for now, let's celebrate Illinois for cracking down at all on these line grifters. Yes. But, uh, you know, we'll, we're, we're keeping our eye on the space. And I think for this minute, I'm taking it as a win. And I'm taking it as a win. So do you want to take it for a second as a win? Woohoo, because I'm about to take you to more uh, oppression hobbyists who are suing for the right to be Liberty Chimps. There's a nurse who filed a suit back in December of 2022. She sued the VA for its new policy providing abortion care. And we just learned this week that she won her case in the Western District of Texas. Stephanie Carter, a nurse and an Army vet, sued under the grounds that the law violated her religious freedoms. And I'm sorry, Stephanie, this is such garbage. And it's just like what we talk about a lot, but this case just got my panties a wad for a couple of reasons. One, she filed the lawsuit in December. The VA clarified, which they were unclear, but clarified, didn't write clarified, let me be clear, in January, that there was already a policy in place for people who wanted a religious exemption. And here's the policy. The VA also respects the rights of employees who carry out our mission every day. To that end, employees and applicants may request to be excused from providing, participating in, or facilitating an aspect of clinical care, including reproductive care, that goes against their values. So that was already in place. And we know these religious exemptions are already in place everywhere. Yeah, they've been all in place everywhere. I feel like every time somebody wants to say, but my religion, our judicial system holds them up. This includes pharmacists, this includes insurance plan, Hobby Lobby just got to straight up opt out of a birth control. And this was when there already was carve out for them. They just had to fill out a form and they said filling out the form also violates our religious freedom. Exactly. And so as we have talked about in the past, I'm sure they dug around till they found a nurse. And then found that nurse in where? Texas. And it's one of those show pony waste of time and taxpayer dollars to yet again declare to the public there's a problem and then 
pretend to solve it with a lawsuit or a law, and then the problem goes away. But the problem went away because it never existed in the first place. And they do this over and over again. You know, whether they pass the like born alive infant act, we can't have abortions after people are born. So we're passing a law to say you can't. Well, bitch, we don't ever do that anyway. And then people are like, yay, you stopped it. And it's just maddening to me. It also really annoys me because like anytime somebody says they need a religious exemption, they get one. And it's like, your religion is getting in the way. No one ever says like, but but I want the right to do things. It's just like, oh, you get exemptions for doing things that no one, I don't want a nurse who doesn't want to do abortions doing my abortion. No one wants that. No one wants that. Also, here's something that's not sus at all or sketch at all. The law firm that's representing this nurse is also the law firm where the judge Alyssa was just talking about in the Miffy case that believed all the bullshit and then repeated all the bullshit from that study. And who also in the, in the Miffy case, he used to be the gen, the deputy general counsel of this law firm who is dedicated to only cases that try to end abortion access and LGBTQ rights, anti-trans. I mean, they are just the worst law firm on the planet. And it also bears repeating. And this is the part that I just feel like really angry about is we talked with, you know, Allison Gill a couple of weeks ago, who was the person who like raised an elevated, let's get some abortion care in the military because post Dobbs, it's shitty. There is not a federal ban on abortion and the military doesn't choose where they're based. So if they need a medical procedure and doctors and nurses can opt out, they need to go somewhere. So with this opt out, that makes that clear more than ever that they need to get paid leave for that. And that's basically what Tommy Tuberville has been holding up progress in the military for not allowing people to get away from people like this nurse to get to places where they can get the care that they need in the timely fashion they need it. That's exactly right. And with abortion care and trans care being the only medical procedures that states are banning, it's not prioritized by anyone except those who need that care. It's not supported in general because people don't look at it as like this general assault. And that's frustrating. But I also feel like, what are we talking about? How many people are we talking about? You know, the VA's undersecretary for health told lawmakers that he expects about a thousand abortions to be performed by the VA annually. And he he also noted, obviously, that that number could rise based on how states are decimating abortion care. And currently, 260,000 women veterans of reproductive age live in states with significant abortion restrictions, right? So- I, I'm just like, this is about military readiness. This is about a lot of shit also that we're not talking about. I mean, it's definitely about human rights. Like, I'm sorry, if you were a woman serving in the military or someone with the capacity of of getting pregnant, serving in the military, you deserve the right to choose abortion if you need to. You can't do your job if you're pregnant. Also, if you are creating a scenario where if you get pregnant, your only option is to leave. How are you going to have leadership in the military from anybody with the capacity for pregnancy, women or anybody, right? It is, it's a way to literally say, we don't want you leading our military. And for those who are already leading people who are in position or just troops who are there, when you disrupt that and you disrupt leadership by saying all of a sudden this person who's our leader now is just like thrown out and done to me. 
that is a constitutional case that I would like to take up because, I mean, I don't have any confidence in this Supreme Court. I was going to say. But serving in the military and having it be your career where if you need to go to battle, you can't be pregnant. Many other jobs you can be pregnant, but this one has a weird other set of circumstances that I'd be curious to see if somebody sued to say somebody else's religious freedom is now interfering with my ability to serve my country when the constitution says that I have the right to do that. And what does that leave? I don't know, but it's something to think about, but it's a good story that we should be following. Let's just follow this story because it could be the sort of underdog story that might lead to the Supreme Court and open up a whole nother conversation. Well, this story and everything else we've talked about will be in our show notes. And as always, we remind you the best and most up to the minute resource on accessing abortion care and funding for your care is INeedAnA.com. Ever wonder just how crazy conspiracy theories get started and then get disseminated? Yes. Whether it's vaccines plant a microchip into your body or there's abortions in our water supply, the right-wing conspiracy machine is real. And our next guest researched and documented just how these conspiracies go from crackpot to consensus. Joining us, a sociologist and author of the Propagandist Playbook, How Conservative Elites Manipulate, Search, and Threaten Democracy, please welcome Francesca Tripodi. Hey, Francesca. Hi, Liz. Hi, Moji. Hi, Francesca. So, Francesca, you and I were at a conference at the University of Florida. It's a, it's a public interest communications conference. And you gave a talk that subsequently had me very excited, very freaked out, because you were talking just about how right-wing nut bars are just manipulating search engines. And we've heard it a bunch and we've seen statistics. You have a book about it. You have a research paper about it. We're going to dive into both, but talk a little bit about what sparked you to want to let folks know just how bad the propaganda is and how they manipulate it to change hearts and minds. Absolutely. So I'm a researcher that's a sociologist, and I also study the internet. And I had the opportunity to do ethnographic research with conservative communities. And I got to really understand what are the main cores and values that they believe in. But as part of this ethnography, I also engaged in what I refer to as media immersion. So for four months, I received all of my news and information from sources that were identified by my subjects as trustworthy sources of news. And in doing so, I was really able to get a better idea of what are the central themes that are coming out of these new systems. Um, but what was fascinating by this project is I was able to realize how interconnected they were. So there were a lot of guests that were appearing on other shows. There was a lot of the same rhetoric and ideas being circulated across platforms. So on podcasts, on radio shows, on you know, cable news, and in print. And then I also started noticing there was this focus on really unique concepts or words and phrases that were completely absent in other sources of news. When you say news sources that people trusted, who are these sources? So I would say for uh, conservatives across the United States, um, sources that were trustworthy sources of news included publications like The Federalist, um, 
the Daily Wire, all of the podcasts that come out of the Daily Wire. So mm. uh, Ben Shapiro has a pretty incredible, robust media network that creates a lot of digital first content. Um, so this is a lot of different podcasts like the Candace Owen show at one time was produced by them, although she also had shows created by Prager University. Um, so Dennis Prager is another one of these media moguls that creates just a plethora of content, both individually. So Ben Shapiro creates a lot of content on his own, um, but they these companies also subsidize a lot of these thinkers to create their own content. So this is where you have um, people like Matt Walsh or Dave Rubin is another one of these uh, content creators. Um, and then they all cross promote each other's content and then serve on each other's shows. Um, and things that I was noticing was not only do these personalities do this, but then they create opportunities for everyday individuals who happen to intersect with issues that are really of top concern in conservative communities. They take that one person and they put them on all the shows. Um, so a good example of this while I was doing my research was the engineer who was fired from Google. So James Damore was a senior software engineer at Google who circulated this memo, basically denying um, diversity, equity, inclusion efforts at Google and saying that they were creating a system where Google was hiring inferior engineers because that's just science, right? Um, and he was he was propagating a lot of uh, pseudoscientific inquiry from the bell curve, which is oh my really God. problematic, wow. right? Also like old school racism. OG Charles Murray garbage. <laughs> so these are concepts that have been like widely debunked and also used in eugenics. Like this is not just like, oh, I had this idea and they said it wasn't good. It's like <laughs> when you promote uh, pseudoscientific inquiry as a way of justifying um, slashing of diversity and equity and inclusion programs. And so he lost his job. And then as a result, he was provided a platform at the Wall Street Journal, Prager University. He was on Fox News. But then he also dabbled in much more extreme bases as well. So when he was on Dave Rubin's show, for example, they signaled to a lot of much more extremist conversations and keywords that are really only known within bubbles within those communities, right? And then they were kind of like signaling and joking to these words and phrases by reading comments from the audience and pretending like, oh, well, that wasn't me that was saying it. That's the audience that's saying it. But in doing so, they were really spreading um, this kind of information. So it was through being um, embedding myself in this media content, really, and really immersing myself in this media content that I was able to identify, oh, not only are they filtering the news around concerns that are of a deep importance to conservatives in the United States, but they are also creating narratives that are completely absent <laughs> when you look at the wider information ecosystem. And it happened on multiple occasions where I was refraining from my traditional sources of news and information. I'd be having conversations with my friends and I'd say things like, oh, well, you know, have you heard about Nellie Orr? Or have you considered what's going on with like Debbie Wasserman's IT security specialist who was recently deported? And my friends were basically looking at me like you all are now, right? Which is like, I have no idea what you're talking about. I, you are literally inside a conversation and information space that is completely separate, is com 
completely different from huge swaths of the population. And that's how I started realizing if it's in all of these information spaces that I'm listening to, how does that transfer into search engines and search base? And so I developed this concept called uh, keyword curation and strategic signaling. So it's creating these words and phrases around these concepts. And then they talk about those concepts ad nauseum. And then they say things on their show like, well, don't believe me. You should search for it yourself. Do your own research. And then when people do their own research on these concepts, they are redirected to the same information spaces because all of these information sources have tagged their content with these same words and phrases. And so you can effectively manipulate search engine returns and search results by just creating a whole set of content that nobody's talking about and making it seem super, super important to the audiences that are listening to your shows. I feel like this is what I thought might be happening because it's like you'll read some things and you're just like, wait, what world are these people in? And how have I never heard that? Can you, for the sensationalist in me, list some of these keywords that we may not be aware of? Sure. I love the do your own research keywords. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, I mean, it's it's scary because you don't want to signal too much to content, but I do think it's important that people recognize that these data voids exist and that mm -hmm. they are hiding in plain sight. So one of the ones that I regularly talk about is this person, Nellie Orr. So I've never heard of them. I know how you voted, right? <laughs> no, exactly. Like It's a perfect um, little task that I do at the beginning of all talks where I say, can anyone in this audience please raise their hands if they know who Nellie Orr is? And they don't. So Nellie Orr is a woman who is married to Department of Justice official Bruce Orr. And because she worked for Fusion GPS, at the same time as Christopher Steele, the... Of the Steele dossier? Of the Steele dossier. Of the dossier fame. Of the, <laughs> of the dossier. Uh, the story goes, this is proof that the Department of Justice was working to take down President Trump um, through illicit means and that he had done absolutely no wrongdoing and that these were all just evidence of a witch hunt from within inside the government. I can't believe they didn't call her Nellie Whore. I'm sure someone has. <laughs> it feels like that would it feels like that would be their like that would be their flex, right? <laughs> like they would just go there because they're so awful. <laughs> they did this to the supposed whistleblower um who brought to to the public attention the call with President Zelensky. And there was this overwhelming focus on this person's name and they were effectively doxxed and they it, they got it to trend on Twitter and um, they were talking about it on radio and they were talking about it on podcasts and for some time Google was auto completing who is the with whistleblower and it was oh trending above who is the winner of the Super Bowl and who is the Mandalorian I mean that's impressive like yes. if you wow. can get con if you can get autocomplete content to compete with the Star Wars franchise, like that's just a true testimony to the power of this network. You know, and the thing is, you just listed Ben Shapiro, Prager University, Dave Rubin, and to most people, like they have no idea even who those people are, mm -hmm. like regular folks, and that they are such profound influencers. Studies have revealed that Ben Shapiro is the number one influencer on anti-abortion thought 
and feelings like Ben Shapiro. Right. And, and people think Fox news is the problem. It's like, no, 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 no. These websites of these people that you've never heard of that creepy Steven Crowder, like all of these people that fall into that narrative are part of that. And so how does this affect how we access abortion because it's sure. very real and yeah. and it's scared it scared the shit out of us for a long time and sounding the alarms like we can't even post about our organization's called abortion access front mm-hmm. we have all of our content shadow banned because we we use the word abortion mm-hmm. and you know we're just silenced but it's worse in the search engines will you talk a little bit about how it plays out when you are googling actual words like abortion or i need an abortion <laughs> Right. Absolutely. One, I just want to document that I systematically studied how how producers tag their content on YouTube. So I was able to look at like, what are the keywords that people are using by the top most influential YouTube creators on the left and those on the right. And the left is abysmal at creating unique words and phrases and tagging their content with information that might draw in an audience that may not even necessarily agree with what you're saying. So a lot of the content creators on the right, for example, are tagging their content with keywords that aren't necessarily representative of what they're saying, but are meant to engage people searching for those terms. So one of the top content creators tagging their phrase feminism, for example, was Jordan Peterson. Oh, God, who I would argue is not a feminist. Right. (laughs) And so these kinds of things is very telling because they just have a very acute understanding of how the Internet works, of why search terms are useful. And not only do they create unique words and phrases around their content to really like dominate search returns, they're also really good at co-opting keywords and phrases and using them to draw attention to their content even if their goal is to um, deny the existence, right, of those terms and phrases. So, for example, if you search abolish the police, right, on YouTube, you get a lot of content that is not supportive of that initiative. But if you search abolish DEI, you get only content that is like very actively working to abolish diversity, equity, and inclusion uh, initiatives across the country. So how does this relate to abortion? Same way. How do people search for content in real life? This is what I'm really interested in. And what I found is that the way people see the world heavily influences the kinds of terms that they're going to use at the outset. And this wouldn't really matter if the internet was just some sort of like free library where people could just go and talk to a helpful librarian and find information that's (laughs) useful and credible. Instead, we are interfacing with effectively like data firms that are advertisers. And so because search engines are ultimately advertising firms trying to collect as much data on us as possible. Their goal is to match you with the most relevant information, regardless of if that might be really the intention kind of behind it. Wow. And so this is why your search terms really, really matter. So two big things from my study. One, those who support abortion, those who are pro-abortion, are pretty uniform in the kind of search terms they look for. So the prompt that I gave people was, you have a friend that is unexpectedly pregnant and thinking of terminating the pregnancy. Do you have a position on this or do you have an opinion on this? People who were very much like, oh, 
her body, her choice, pro-choice or pro-abortion were pretty uniform in the concepts that they searched. So they would search either Planned Parenthood, they would go directly to Planned Parenthood website, or many of them searched abortion near me. And that's where it got complicated. And people on the people who were anti-abortion had um, much less continuity in their search terms. They were much more likely to be searching things like alternatives for abortion or um, adoption near me. But what we found is that whether or not people were searching for abortion near me or alternatives for abortion, the very top return um, indicating an advertisement was always a crisis prevention center, the CPC. And so that is concerning, right? Because a lot of people, I think more and more people have better understanding of why advertising gets listed first and they're required, right? To say like, this is an ad, um, but it still implies if you're searching abortion near me, this advertiser does in fact provide abortions and we know that they do not. I love that you brought us to your title because we actually had the privilege to read your paper, Abortion Near Me, The Implications of Semantic Research in Accessing Health Information. And I think one thing that might help me just with this conversation is, can you explain what semantic media means in this context? Because I think that's what you're talking about, but I'm unclear and I want to get clear. Yeah, yeah. So this notion of a semantic media is effectively search engines are no longer this like list of blue links. Kind of if you think about like search engines of yore or when we all started using GoDaddy, like something like Google. <laughs> Ask Jeeves. Jeeves. Ask Jeeves. <laughs> when we all started using Ask Jeeves, um, it was just a list of these like blue hyperlinks. And so we would engage in these kind of exploratory search practices. But search engines are evolving and their goal is to answer the questions for us. So now we have things like knowledge graphs. We have things like people also ask. Um, we have direct, more like these direct answers to our questions that convey a level of veracity in the in the return um, as though that's the truth. And these statements are scraped from the websites that you're being connected to. So you can, you know, link on that and then potentially get to the information source or realize like, mm, maybe this recap isn't accurate, or maybe this recap isn't as useful as I want it to. But the goal, and this is even more so with the burst of generative AI that we're seeing, right? Like, search in general is changing so rapidly. The goal is to effectively answer our questions that we don't even know we necessarily have, right? How can they predict what we need even more than we know what we need? Well, and also too, when we talk about the post-Dobbs landscape that we're in, right? And we also think about and talk about a lot on this podcast that when you Google abortion near me or where can I get an abortion, you're doing that because you know you're pregnant, right? So your journey has already started. So when you Google abortion near me, people forget 24 states have voted to ban abortion or limit it profoundly. Some are waiting on court cases, but let, let's go with the 24 states that have some varying degrees of horribleness. And there's not an actual clinic near me, right? Mm -hmm. Let's talk about how that search return can really delay care. Absolutely, right? So, and what's fascinating about our study is that we were conducting it in the month before and then the months after 
this decision. So we were able to really document how this landscape was rapidly changing very quickly. Before that decision happened, there was no differentiation in a CPC or an abortion clinic. They would list them all in order. Uh, there was no indication of whether or not that provider was even a healthcare clinic, right? And so what changed in our study is that there became a toggle to the returns where Google was trying to only show information for where you could get an actual abortion. And if you toggled, does provide abortions, does not. And then they would also create a tag, which would say like, does provide abortion, does not provide abortion. I think that that is beneficial, right? In, in some respects, like, but I also think it creates this collapse of information and really like what it is that these services are providing. So for example, in the city that I live in, there are multiple Planned Parenthoods, only one provides an abortion. Mm -hmm. So if I search abortion near me, um, CPCs and Planned Parenthood are both listed. And underneath both is the disclaimer, may not provide abortion. But a CPC is not the same thing as right. a Planned Parenthood, right? Even a Planned Parenthood that doesn't provide abortion. Right? Even a Planned Parenthood that doesn't provide abortions <laughs> yeah. is in fact a healthcare clinic. Yeah. Um, and a CPC, it does not provide healthcare services. Search engines are businesses and you know, they can put a tag, they can put a thing. They still made $10 million yep, off of yep. advertising mm -hmm. dollars from these fake clinics. So tag up a bitch. I don't really care. Like your end goal <laughs> is making money while other people are being fooled, even in, yeah. with your little tags. And research shows that people who do not get access to abortion care immediately are still seeking an abortion four to five weeks after right. being dissuaded to have the procedure. And so this is extremely concerning, right? As we're seeing these gestational limits being the window for opportunity, right? Being erased entirely or continuously closed, giving people information to go to a place that might dissuade them from having an abortion only to find themselves four weeks later, unable to, is, is extremely concerning. This is fascinating. <laughs> I want to know, you brought up like the left is terrible with this. Progressives are terrible with this. What is something that like abortion clinics and other groups that care about um, finding accurate information can do to remedy this? And we, us, we are like yeah. us, we want like people us, to listen yeah. to our podcast, you know, like <laughs> yeah. what should we be doing? Yeah. Cause I have noticed when you said that about that, we have been tracking students for life, doing all this horrible shit and promoting all this horrible shit. And I noticed they had a jillion hashtags on TikTok. Half of them were stuff that we use. Mm -hmm. So I did notice that as you were saying that. So I'm sorry to interrupt, yeah. but like- No, no, no. I mean, I, I know there are a lot, I know you all talk a lot about um, other organizations that provide information about how to access an abortion. So it's interesting to me, even that Planned Parenthood is the go-to return. And I'm not mm -hmm. sure- why that is. This is unfortunately the black box of internet search. We just are extremely reliant on algorithms that we don't know how they work and they are proprietary <laughs> sources of information. And so we really don't know 100%. Um, I think we do know that tags do matter, right? So there's this really incredible research project that happened in the early 2000s that talks about the politics of algorithms and the importance of 
tagging your content. And so I think just basic like SEO strategies. Um, but I think also it's recognizing like not only do you want to try to tag your content in words and keywords that describe what you're doing, but I would also pay attention to what the keywords and tags mm -hmm. of anti-abortion groups are using because if they're the only ones using those words and phrases, they're the only information that's going to get returned. Mm. It's funny because I think that a lot in in many ways in, in how sort of the progressive left for whatever goes. And I feel like we have more of a commitment to truth, <laughs> which is a little bit of our problem. <laughs> so I would say, you know, advertising is different than truth, right? right? If your content is very truthful, how you get the people there is different. And mm -hmm. I also think a big benefit the right-wing politicians and pundits have is that there has been a distinct effort to unify the concerns of the right uh, for decades. So since the 1950s and 60s, strategists have been using really important tools to unify party around topics that might otherwise really have nothing to do with one another. So things like abortion and what they refer to as family, firearms, a free market. These are subjects that might not necessarily intersect, but there's been a lot of really foundational work that has like unified people around these concepts. And I would say that there is not that same level of unification when it comes to progressive causes and progressive concerns. And so it's harder to create catchwords and phrases or like focus people's attention around subjects. Yeah. Francesca, we could talk to you all day long. All day. And I'm so sorry we have to go, but... <laughs> To really get the lowdown on how conservatives are using propaganda and manipulating search engines and threatening democracy, get Francesca's book, The Propaganda's Playbook, How Conservative Elites Manipulate Search and Threaten Democracy. And Francesca has written a paper that is just awaiting publication, and we got to have a sneak peek, but when it gets published... We will absolutely post it for you and share it with you. It's called Abortion Near Me, The Implications of Semantic Media on Accessing Information. We will list all the places people can find you on social in our show notes. Francesca, thank you so much for joining us and filling us in. This was incredibly enlightening. I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much, Moji and Liz. It's been really awesome. Her book, The Propagandist Playbook, How Conservative Elites Manipulate Search, and Threatened Democracy is out now and is an amazing read. Link is in the show notes. And now the party game that is faster than Monopoly and more fun than Taboo, Six Degrees of Abortion. And this is when I take a story from the news and Liz has six chances to link it to abortion. Uh, let's see if I can stump her this week. You ready, Liz? Whoop, whoop, whoop. Got your pop culture pants on. I've got my pop culture pants on. <laughs> so this is really super fun for me. So I don't know if you have um, been on TikTok the way I have, but my TikTok has been blowing up by the song. Uh, one margarita, I'm going to show you my time. Got two margaritas, I'm going to do time. Got No, it goes up to five margaritas. Anyway, it was I have based no on idea this. what you're talking about. Okay, it's a song. It's hilarious. And it basically this like preacher lady called Sister Cindy was at the University of Louisiana yelling about how you don't need to take a girl out for margaritas because she'll start doing freaking uh trashy slutty stuff and then this one podcaster and youtuber made a really funny song about it that i think again is dominating my tiktok so they did a video and the video starts with a um with cindy crawford 
uh, supermodel, Cindy Crawford, doing a remake of her Pepsi ad, you know, the one where she's wearing like a white tank top and walking and everyone's like, and then she kind of rocks up to the bar and then the, the artist of the one margarita knocks her over and then the video is just really fun. So I would just like you to take some time and link Cindy Crawford, the supermodel, to abortion. Okay, Cindy Crawford to abortion. Um, Did Cindy Crawford date Richard Gere? Is that right? Yes, that is correct. Angela Wang and everybody, this is fun. You never get to hear Angela, our producer, coming in. All right, so Cindy Crawford dated Richard Gere. Richard Gere starred in Pretty Women with Julia Roberts. Mm -hmm. Julia Roberts did a film with Phoebe Robinson and helped her like swim in the ocean for the first time and held her. Phoebe Robinson was on our podcast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that is it. I got us there. It's very good. It's very good. Well done. Yeah, I have no no complaints. Thank that you. That is a classic win. I know. I got it in That's five. Classic. That was close yeah. though. But also I have no idea what we, when you were like talking about that margarita thing, I just placed <laughs> it. I was like, just get to the part where I'm like, you're like having a margarita. You don't need to give women margaritas because they'll just put out. But I'm happy for you. It would have been sad if I missed my birthday. Six degrees. I thought that Cindy Crawford was just the right about a hard. <laughs> no, that was a good one. I had to think about it for a minute because I was going to take it to Julia Roberts and her husband, Danny Motor. And Danny Motor is actually a friend, but that was boring. So I just went the Phoebe Robinson way. So I feel good. good. All right. Thank you, Moji. I feel like we're nailing it. Let's move on to our most wonderful, hilarious guest. All right. Up next is a comedian and actor we had the chance to talk to right before Marie left the pod with her comedy album, A Very Particular Experience. She's taken her skills as a comedian and communicator to learn to heal and help others to heal from trauma. We wanted to give a warning that this interview covers pregnancy loss and stillbirth. So if you're struggling and are not ready for this conversation, you may want to take a break from the episode at this point. For the rest of you, please welcome comedian and actor Liz Glazer. Hello. Hello. Hi, Liz. So, single Z, Liz. Yes. <laughs> How's your day? What's happening? Uh, my day is good. I would say what's happening is I'm waiting for my wife to hopefully have a baby. Like right now? Like during our podcast? Like we hope we make it's, it through the podcast. Yes, I do hope we make it through the podcast. And and I don't I don't anticipate that like in this interview specifically we'll have to run to the hospital, but like theoretically it's possible because she is three centimeters dilated. We went to the doctor, the membranes are off the cervix. I oh feel like this is a, a setting where I can be yeah, yeah, yeah. really yeah. detailed about that. Yeah, yeah. Get granular. Yeah. <laughs> and everything with like watching somebody else's pregnancy, I'm just like, I never knew about this. Like, I feel like we make fun of men for not knowing anything about women's bodies. I'm mm -hmm. like, I also didn't know much about women's bodies, if I'm being honest. And so do you know how many holes we have? <laughs> I think I okay. always I'm like, I, my thing is like, like, I, I have a lot of degrees, but I feel like I'm overeducated and under smart mm -hmm. because I feel like, okay, people are like, oh, you were a professor. So I guess you should not. I'm like, I don't like believe all women, not this one. Cause like <laughs> the odds are, I don't know. 
you know, for the most part, I really feel that way. And so anyway, but the membrane thing, I guess, once the membranes are off the cervix, which is like um, a thing a doctor, like an OB did, okay? Like she was like somewhat dilated and then that happened, she became more dilated and it's an effort I have learned to stimulate labor, okay? And so allegedly, according to the internet, 70% of people go into labor 24 to 48 hours after that has been done. But of course, I mean, I know enough to know that it's like, well, but they're already close to the ends of their pregnancies and maybe they would have anyway. And is it correlated or caused or whatever? So I recognize that it's not any kind of perfect experiment, but these these are the data as I know them. And this is the moment of my life that I'm in currently. You know, I was, I gotta say that I was kind of hoping that you were gonna say, and my wife is in a pool in the other room. So <laughs> nor the screaming. We're just going to get through this. I just wanted to like know exactly what we're doing, talking about here. Well, but. I mean, you know, not to put a damper, it, this po- podcast is called Buzzkills in some way. <laughs> yeah. And so, I mean, I, I came out with an album about stillbirth, you know, which was something that happened to me and my wife. And so we go to the hospital at a moment's notice. Like this is not going to be any sort of a home birth, which I'm not like opposed to a home birth situation. But I think that like after God forbid, somebody has like a kind of traumatic or very traumatic experience. I feel like we're, we want professionals in on that. When we had before, you know, it wasn't like the last time we were like, we're going to do this ourselves. And then it went South. It was like, we thought we had the best care And apparently, you know, things just didn't go well, um, to say the very least. But in this instance, we have like high risk doctors and we basically moved into the doctor's office during this pregnancy. It's a very, very highly watched situation, which is I mean, to my like I'm a big surveillance fan. Like of myself, I'm very happy to be surveilled. Like when I see like, you know, when you go into a cab or whatever. And it's like this smile, you're on camera. (laughs) I'm like, can I get my tape? You know, like that's my personality. But I also like, I don't watch reality TV, but if someone just had footage of their security camera in their house, I would watch 24 hours a day because I like, I like that kind of reality. So Anyway. You should do a show on on the Ring channel. You know, the Ring on the, the door. Yeah. <laughs> they should just totally. make, make that a show. I have been known to watch those into the night when we had one at our old yeah. office. I would like wake totally. up at two in the morning. I'd be like, what's happening? And you know what? At ours, nothing. But around the rest of Brooklyn, all kind of shit was happening. You know, people poop on each other's doorsteps a lot in this city. Really? That gets caught on rings. (laughs) That's amazing. Yeah. My friend has her Instagram at skunks and cats because her backyard, she lives in LA, like she has a camera on a water feeder thing that's in her backyard and skunks and various wild cats gather at the water feeder and she has them on her camera. And so she like edits the clips and it's like really entertaining stuff. So I also really like that kind of footage. But anyway, all of it to say, we're being very highly watched in this pregnancy, which of course, I mean, 
you know, I'd be lying if I intimated at all that I wasn't the most nervous person in the world, because I am. But I'm also trying to, I don't know, like be in the moment. You know what I mean? I don't know. I was trying to think because like as comedians, right, we always are looking for an analogy. It's an interesting parallel between lawyers and comedians because analogy is like the sauce of it, right? But it's like in what other situation, like waiting is something that we do. It's like I wait to go into therapy, but this is like waiting to go into therapy, but then I bring my therapist home and raise her, you know, like (laughs) it's, it's like different. It's different from any kind of I'm waiting for something huge to happen. That's going to change my life, my every day. You know what I mean? So it's like a wild time. As a person, the only person on this pod right now who has in fact given birth, I just want to say it's wild. I'm a breeder and it's (laughs) wild how little they tell you about pregnancy until you get to it and all the ways it can go wrong. Right. Like, and of course you wrote a whole album about that. Can you tell us how, um, kind of writing your album and talking about it kind of helped you with your healing after such, in my opinion, a traumatic experience? Yes. I mean, it was a hundred percent a traumatic experience. And I think I knew right away that I needed to and wanted to talk about it. And so that decision was, it wasn't even a decision. It was kind of like an impulse from within, you know, that it was just like, well, obviously this is going to be the stuff of whatever my next work is. And I feel like there's always this like thing with making comedy from trauma. That's like, well, you shouldn't joke about that. And it's like, what would be better when people say there's there's stuff that's not funny about certain topics, they're telling grieving people who may find humor helpful in their grief that they aren't allowed that route to healing. And worse, they believe that they're helping by decreeing this like too soon business. And so my question whenever that comes up is, first of all, it's not like I'm saying here are some one-liners about stillbirth and here are like a hundred dead baby jokes or whatever. That's not like ever what I meant. And I, you know, I don't think that anybody who's actually like listened to the full album would think anything in that neighborhood. But like, you know, I get that that this is like the thing with like, oh, you shouldn't joke about this stuff where I'm just like, what? I, I just think it's like a very kind of small position. And it's a position that's taken from this idea that like it is offensive to find humor because I think there's this assumption and conflation that humor is like laughing at somebody and poking fun at somebody and insulting somebody. But mm-hmm. actually humor can be the thing that lifts people up and makes makes life joyful and something that can include others. And so, so much of writing and then, you know, the album itself as it exists and was performed is about the fact that my wife and I were worried that we would never laugh again. And so much of our connection and what we find life force in has always been laughter. And that's separate from the fact that like, I'm a comedian, like I'm a comedian is just kind of like, oh, okay. Like, 
The only way that's different is like, so I make comedy albums, right? But I think like laughter is accessible to everybody. Everybody can say a joke, write a joke, laugh at a joke. You know what I mean? But it's a question I think of, was I able to, I knew I wanted to say something of import that wasn't a funny thing, but that I could communicate via jokes and laughter and humor. And so the album I mean, it's about grieving in other forms because we also lost our cat Mona and my dad died. And by the way, there's nothing like a stillbirth to make your dead dad material, your lighter stuff. Yeah. (laughs) That was definitely a thing that I experienced in, you know, workshopping some of the material that went on this album. But essentially it was an album about grief and humor and the ways in which humor could and and did empirically lift my mother, my other family members, the people surrounding us when our daughter died and was born dead. Um, All of those moments were surrounded by humor. And I don't think that was at all like offensive. I mean, nothing about, you know what I mean? It's like, it was not, it was a beautiful album. Oh, thank you so much. I really (laughs) appreciate it. I'm sorry. It is. It's only like a month old. Yeah. 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 Grieving in isolation is how you don't get out. And humor bring opens up the pathway to inviting people in to help you through it. Yeah, I think that's right. And it's not my intention to like say that any everybody needs to go through something the same way. But like my wife and I are both writers and performers. She's a rabbi. I'm a comedian. And so her Yom Kippur sermon was about this experience. And it was not funny, you know, because a Yom Kippur sermon in general is not funny. And my comedy album is funny because it's a comedy album. Some of the jokes have nothing to do with grief or, you know, anything. They're just sort of, I think I capitalize on my style and ADD or whatever it is where it's like I go on one million tangents in order to get to maybe a point. And um, so some of the jokes are actually not about death or dying or stillbirth or grief, but many of them are. And I think ultimately the through line of the album is This happened on this day, which was the one year anniversary of the stillbirth of our daughter, Leo Pearl of blessed memory. And the day was going to happen no matter what. My wife was going to experience it no matter what. And I wanted to bring all of our friends together to support me, but also her with laughter and joy and support. And this this was the way, you know, that I knew how to do it. Well, I also appreciate because the output of this album, you're putting information out there about miscarriage health. Like you're raising awareness yes. on. I appreciated you were candid in the album. You're like, I didn't know too much about this before. Yeah. And I'm wondering not to. Well, I guess this is a bit, a bit taking you and your wife's really personal reproductive journey it's and okay. applying it to the rest of the country or over half the country. What are your thoughts on the situations in states now where doctors are afraid to treat those high-risk pregnancies where basic miscarriage care might be what that person needs? And it's viewed as abortion care instead of miscarriage management, when in fact we know spontaneous abortion is a large encompassing term and and space. Yeah, I mean, my instinct is find another doctor and move for better care. That's my real instinct because I'm coming from that place of emergency and trauma. Mm -hmm. And, you know, for us in this pregnancy, which is my wife's second pregnancy, we have a high risk team. She wasn't designated high risk. Um, And that's something that's like 
you know, not uniform across medical practices and whatever. And so, you know, I, I would go with like the doctor who thinks that you're high risk if there's any indication that you would be high risk. Go for the conservatives, ironically. Yeah. (laughs) Lead that conservative doctor. Yeah. Well, and the other thing I'll say is that from my understanding, part of the reason that stillbirths are as high as they are in the United States is because of anti-abortion activists blocking research about stillborn babies. Mm -hmm. Um, And so one of the intentions I had with putting out the album is like, yeah, to talk through healing and grief and all that. But also it's like, okay, so we're not talking about this. And I think we should And maybe, you know, raising awareness of it will also help save mothers, right? Not just save babies. And to destigmatize why people have abortions in in later pregnancies and things like that. So Yeah, totally. So thank you for having me here to talk about it. I really appreciate you. We loved listening to you. Yes. Mm -hmm. Oh, thanks. I do you. And your album. Oh my God. So good. Thanks. Yeah. It's called A Very Particular Experience and it's available on Blonde Medicine's website. Feel free to find me at www.dearlizglazer.com if you want to write me or whatever. Liz, thank you so much for really um, tapping into pain and making it accessible and amazing for people and helping people rethink the way that maybe they were set in their ways. It's incredible. Oh, thanks. I really appreciate you. And thank you for what you do with this podcast, truly. Thanks, Liz. Oh, my God. So inspiring. You can follow Liz on social, on Instagram at Liz Glazer and on Twitter at Elizabeth Glazer. And to get all the info about her special, a very particular experience and her tour dates, you can go to DearLizGlazer.com. Update. Shortly after we recorded this, Liz and her wife, Karen, became parents of a beautiful daughter named Eloise. And everyone is thriving. That is a great way to end our show. Everyone is thriving. That is our show. Thanks again, Rob and Liz and Francesca. You can find out all the ways to support them in our show notes. And thank you so much for listening. Like, subscribe, and show us some love with a five-star rating. And stay connected on social media with us at Abortion Front. Let's make a difference together and have some fun doing it. Do it for Liz. It's her birthday tomorrow. Yes, it is. It is. Also, looking for where you might fit in and do some abortion activism? We've got our five-part activist training series, Operation Save Abortion, at operationsaveabortion.com. And you can visit our cool activist calendar while you're there, which is full of local and national actions and educational opportunities. That's right, operationsaveabortion.com. You'll find all the events, both in-person and virtual, that you could ever want in your abortion life. Coming up on August 14th at 6 p.m. Eastern is an Exposed Fake Clinics Action Hour over Zoom, where you can get trained up to warn folks in your community online about the dangers of anti-abortion centers. Find the sign-up link and more information at the OperationSaveAbortion.com calendar. And next week's guest, TikTok creator and comedian Stanzi Potenza, whose hot girl activism tour dates begin in August, and Dr. Deshaun Taylor, founder and owner of Desert Star Family Planning, to discuss her new book, Undo Burden, a Black woman physician on being Christian and pro-abortion in the reproductive justice movement. Join our Patreon. You'll support great content and get great, cool FBK merch and experiences. All pledges support this pod and all of our activism at Abortion Access Front. Pledge at patreon.com slash feminist buzzkills. Have I mentioned it's uh, Liz's birthday yet? Do it for Liz! Do it for me!
FBK is edited by Remy DeTournay and is produced by Abortion Access Front. And finally, we leave you not only with mentions of my birthday. Did we mention it's my birthday? It's your birthday! But with Raymond Ibrahim, Islamophobe and pseudo-scholar showing his whole sexist ass at Operation Save America's annual meeting of the mask holes. My message is to men. Men need to man up, bottom line. You can't look to women. You know, when I look... When I look at a country and the best they can come up for a president is a woman, it just, there's something wrong about that. That doesn't mean women aren't smart or capable, I believe that. But if the very best, the creme de la creme, is a woman, what is that? That tells me something about the men, okay? And when it comes to positions of authority and leadership. Feminist Buzzkills, the podcast from Abortion Access Front. New episodes drop Friday. When BS is popping, we pop off. And if you want to support our podcast and all the work of Abortion Access Front, like, subscribe, and join our Patreon at patreon.com slash feminist buzzkills.